from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Helen Hatch, and I'm an elder here currently serving on the session at First Presbyterian. Please join me in the call to worship. We often feel as if we are wandering through our lives searching for something we cannot name. We come today to listen for hope, to pray for strength, and to experience God's love. Speak to us of faith, hope, and love, O Lord. As the deer longs for flowing water in the wilderness, we look to drink deeply in God's promise for us. Knowing God is here, we join together on our journey. Lead us to your still waters, O Lord. Imprisoned by rules of our own making, we come to remember and claim our faith. Assured by the vision of God, whose life leads us to life, we come in fellowship with one another. Clothe us in the love of Christ, O Lord. With shouts of praise and songs of thanksgiving, we come to celebrate the God of hope, the spirit of peace, and the Christ of redeeming love. We come to pray, we come to sing, we come to listen, we come to praise. We come to worship our God. Our scripture lesson this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Hear God's word for you and for me this morning. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And when he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. 
But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Lord, break open this word afresh to us in our moment, in our time, so that we may hear the truth, be set free, and to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Right off the bat, we're going to do a little bit of heavy lifting. As I begin this sermon by sharing a little bit about how racism worked in the neighborhood that I grew up in. How racism worked in the neighborhood where I grew up. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, my middle-class neighbors and friends were all white, without exception. The neighborhood narrative we learned went something like this. The reason why no black people live on our block is because they aren't smart enough or hardworking enough to get the kind of jobs, to pay the kind of money that can afford the kind of house that exists in our neighborhood. In other words, we were taught that black people and white people were not equal. White people were smarter and worked harder than anybody else. By the mid-1990s, the neighborhood began to change, as they say. My family had moved out to the suburbs, and the couple that eventually purchased our home had a mixed marriage. She was white, he was African-American. As an aside, you know there's a way that white people use that phrase, the neighborhood has really changed. There's a way white people use that as code to say more minorities have moved in. And 99 times out of 100, it is spoken with anger and a hint of lament. Well, in my neighborhood, as more and more non-white folk moved in, the operating narrative was significantly contested by facts on the ground. African-Americans and Latinos were buying houses in the neighborhood. They could, in fact, afford to live there. They did, in fact, have good-paying jobs, and in many cases, more than not, had better-paying jobs and better education than the people who were already living in the neighborhood. But instead of challenging the racist narrative and questioning its irrational and non-empirical logic, most white folk I knew simply doubled down on it. Instead of being angry at the narrative itself or angry at the ones that spoke this narrative into existence, anger was directed at their new neighbors. 
Many conversations were had around white dinner tables. They repeated phrases like, we can't live here anymore if they live here. They are not our equals. We have to move out. We hate them because they're making us move out. While I never heard those words spoken at my own dinner table, the formation I received under the larger culture in which I was raised was enough to make me a racist. I bought the narrative. I held on to it through elementary school, middle school, and high school. When I started college, I did a program before my freshman year would begin in preparation for my studies, and my roommate for one month during that program was African American. His name is Doug, and he was my first black friend. Literally, my first black friend. His friendship and other friendships in my college and post-college years and my education, particularly my theological education, spoke a hard truth into my life and led me on a journey of repentance. I discovered the real need to repent. Repent of my own racism, my own elitism in all of its obvious and obscure forms, and to be ever mindful of the racist formation under which I was raised, a formation I constantly and consistently seek to undo. A formation that convinced me that as a white male, the so-called other was not equal to me, even if there was evidence to the contrary. I confess that, and I ask forgiveness for it. I begin with this confession this morning, keenly aware of the fact that we have just passed the one-year anniversary of Charleston. I begin this way this morning, keenly aware of the fact that we just passed the one-week anniversary of Orlando. I begin with this confession because the formation I received in the neighborhood and schools in which I was raised, they're deeply connected, deeply connected to these massacres, deeply connected to the violence we see in the world. For this mindset, this formation that says we are not equal to each other, that our difference demotes some and promotes others, gives rise to violence of all kinds spiritual, psychological, emotional, physical, gives rise to violence that is sanctioned and unsanctioned, gives rise to violence that is systematic and chaotic. In his book on violence, philosopher Slavov Žižek wrote these words as part of the introduction. He said, at the forefront of our minds, the obvious signals of violence are acts of crime and terror, civil unrest, and international conflict. But we should learn to step back, to disentangle ourselves from the fascinating lore of this directly visible subjective violence, that is, violence performed by a clearly identifiable agent. We need to perceive, he says, the contours of the background that generates such outbursts. 
We need to perceive the contours of the background that generates such outbursts. I want to heed Zizek's encouragement. I want to understand the background. I want to name the background as the violence behind the violence. The violence behind the violence. I want to understand the violent narratives and the violent cultural formation that gives rise to the violent acts we observe far too often in our world. As a Christian, as a Christian, and in the quest to identify the background, to name it as violence behind the violence, I recognize the requirement to do such a thing in theological terms. As a Christian, I must address this in a theological way. And if we are to do this work faithfully, we must acknowledge the role the biblical witness has in shaping these terms, in shaping this theological conversation. But that witness is not without its challenges, right? I mean, you know this to be true if you know your Bible. For in many parts of the Old Testament and New Testament, violence is sanctioned and promoted and sometimes even perpetrated by God or by God's people. This challenge requires exceedingly more time and attention than we have available to give it this morning. And so for now, might we leave open some questions about the witness? Is the violence attributed to God in our scriptures simply our own creation and a manifestation of the violence behind the violence? In other words, is violence rooted not in God's character, but in ours? Is it rooted in our religious elitism, whereby our enemies become God's enemies, our victories become God's victories, our defeats become God's divine punishment upon us. And so we write our religious history through stories where we play the role of God's elect, that we're on the right side of God, and the other plays the role of our enemy. Even still, this biblical witness offers a very direct response to this structure of good guy and bad guy, of friend of God and of enemy of God. For Jesus, who Christians claim to be God in the flesh, instructed us to love our enemies. And in the words of the great Tony Campolo, when Jesus said that we should love our enemies, I'm pretty sure that he didn't mean we should kill them. In light of the work and person of Jesus Christ, in light of his crucifixion, all narratives of violence, all violent cultural formation that serves as pretext for actualized violence must be seriously scrutinized, even if those narratives appear in our sacred texts. Even when they do appear in our sacred texts, we must seriously scrutinize them. In the quest to identify the background, the violence behind the violence, we turn to a sacred text this morning, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. 
As I said last week, if you were here, every parable that Jesus tells provides for us multiple interpretive possibilities. There are many truths to be gleaned in these stories. For example, some have interpreted this particular parable, the workers in the vineyard, in a way that declares God's preference for an economic system that pays everyone the same wage regardless of the work rendered. It's an interpretation that promotes Jesus as sort of this pre-socialist as it justifies what we might label a very liberal economic agenda. Others offer a much more spiritualized interpretation, claiming that this parable has nothing to do with the structures or the systems of the earth, but has everything to do with salvation, about the life that is to come, that God's grace is offered equally to those who have been, let's say, at work in the field of faith, like many Presbyterians, at work in the field of faith since their birth but it's also equally offered to those who come to the fields of faith in the very last hour of their life. The same grace is offered to all workers no matter how long they work. While it's hard for me to affirm the notion that this, that this parable is setting up a system applicable to contemporary economic structures, I'm equally suspicious of any interpretation that tries to spiritualize this parable out of the realities in which we live. For me, at least in this moment, at this very moment and in this very time, the word we need to hear today from this parable, among the many words that it offers us, but the word that we need to hear today, the very specific word that it offers us today, is a word that I believe sheds light on the background, sheds light on the violence behind the violence. It is contained in the speech attributed to the full-day workers who say this upon receiving their wage. And when they received their wage, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. There it is in plain sight. It's right there right in front of us, you have made them equal to us. Wait a minute. We've been told our whole lives that they are not equal to us. We've been told that they don't deserve what we deserve. And the narrative Jesus offers is a completely different story than the one that many of us have been taught. See, the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is marked by equalization. The ministry of Christ upsets all the violence behind the violence, making the last first and the first last so as to eliminate entirely the categories of first and last, and declaring that in the world that God intends for us to receive and steward, that in that world, no one life is more or less valuable than another. I'm convinced that the background, the violence behind the violence, finds its genesis, theologically speaking, in our grumbling against God for declaring, for having the audacity to declare that all of us are equal. That's not what we were taught, Lord. It's not what we were told. It's not what we have been convinced of. And yet that is precisely what God has done. It is precisely what God is doing, and it is precisely what God will do into the future. Therefore, church, our perpetuation 
or participation in any narrative or societal norm or political agenda or personal worldview that does not affirm the reality that God has made all people equal is not just unchristian, it is anti-God and it is anti-Christ and therefore must be abandoned by Christ's followers in the world. For Christ lived for a different story. He was executed because he told parables like this one. He died for a different story. He was raised to validate that story. And his spirit came to breathe that story to life in the church and to unseat and undo all narratives and formations that give rise to spiritual, emotional, psychological, and physical violence. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as witnesses to the kingdom of God, as heralds of the good news that God has declared all people equal, the church of Jesus Christ must not grumble against God. In fact, we must nonviolently dismantle all narratives and human formation that grumbles at that which God has declared to be so. Lest we see one more Charleston and another Orlando. We must confess, confront, and cast out the violence behind the violence in our own lives and in the life of the world. We must replace the narratives of inequality with the story of God's equalizing generosity if we are ever to experience real shalom and real peace. Amen.
promise to serve Jesus that we make in worship this day, a song that we use as a prayer, is to be a messenger of peace, a messenger of the good news for all people that Christ has come to reconcile the world, and that under the blanket of God's love, all people have been declared equal, and so we work as the church to bear witness to that narrative and replace all narratives that promote violence in the world. Blessed are the peacemakers, says Christ. May we be blessed as peacemakers this day and in the days ahead. And may Christ's peace, which surpasses all understanding, a peace that the world cannot give, a peace that only he can give, may that peace live inside of each and every one of us this day and forevermore. Oh,